The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, medical advice, and quite a bit of subdued anger, and yet it's strangely calm. Sunday, the 20th of December 2020. Uh, This isn't quite part of the end of spring series, but here we are anyway with an unscheduled pod just for you. In this episode, we hear a prediction from 2016. When Trump loses the election, he will never acknowledge, he will not concede the election, and he will never acknowledge that he lost the election. We hear a theological theory about why Democrats are bad. If you know anybody who says they're a Democrat, they need to be ashamed of themselves. But it's not all about America, there's Christmas messages from some of Australia's favourite politicians. Oh, yes there are. This is the 9pm Surprise Christmas Plague Submarine. Everybody in the greater Sydney area, including the Central Coast and the Blue Mountains, uh, we're asking you not to have more than 10 people in your home, in addition to whoever lives in your home until midnight on Wednesday. Again, as a precaution, because we know that indoor settings in small areas uh, actually exacerbate or accelerate the spread. I have to announce on the best of public health advice uh, that from 11.59pm tonight, we will declare all of Greater Sydney and the Central Coast a red zone. Uh, Beyond that, the Northern Beaches will become a hot zone. What that means is that nobody who has, who's from those parts of Sydney, Greater Sydney, or has or have visited that part of Greater Sydney, will be allowed to travel back to Melbourne or any part of uh, Victoria. If you do arrive back or travel here, you will face 14 days of mandatory hotel quarantine. Mm, thank you, uh, Premier Dan Andrews uh, from Victoria. Look, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I I mean, I'm in Sydney at the moment recording this, uh, not where I'd first intended, but in a hotel room. Um, When I was on the train the other day coming down from Sydney, what was it, two days ago, someone asked me, you know, whether I was worried about going to Sydney. No, I said, no, it's a big city. The 17 cases that we knew of at that point were all up on the northern beaches. They were clustered around Avalon. And I wasn't going within 20 kilometres of there. Uh, there were a couple of other uh, locations of concern, but, you know, I'm in a very different, very different demographic from that lot up there. And uh, those folks were pretty unlikely to be going to the places I was. But as I explained to this person, uh, that risk assessment might change when further information emerges, right? You change your mind. Well, Further information has emerged over the last two days. Uh, Potential infection sites have cropped up all over the place. Uh, And today I was working in the Darling Square Library. Great place to work, by the way. Um, Modern libraries are are just a wonderful thing. Anyway, I was working in the library when, after the press conference was on, uh, which was at 11am, that ran nearly an hour, uh, and uh, that first grab with uh, Premier Gladys Berejiklian uh, was part of that. Anyway, sh- shortly after that, the staff started telling us that they'd been told to shut the library down at 1pm. Um, so, yeah, uh, first time I've been chucked out of a library when I wasn't drunk. 
Um, I wasn't going to record in the library, obviously. I was going to record outside somewhere uh, to, to give a bit of, you know, a kind of holiday ambience. But, you know, I really lost the enthusiasm after all that. And I was also thinking back to March and through to July when I did 12 little episodes titled The 9pm His Plague Diary, numbers 1 to 12. And that was as I say, produced between March and July when I kind of felt like a day-to-day or week-by-week account of how the COVIDs uh, were affecting me personally might be an interesting thing to do. Uh, But of course, the months have dragged on, haven't they? And Like I just stopped. Uh, Look, I might record a final episode looking back at the COVIDs once it's all over, assuming it will ever be all over, which it might not be. I mean, I'm optimistic about the uh, the vaccine coming out soonish, but let's see how that goes. Anyway, I won't go on about the situation in Sydney today. Everything's still very fluid, and, and what I'm saying now could well be out of date before you even listen to it. As we approach the end of the year, I think it's important to learn as much as we can about science, particularly medicine. So here goes. If you are addicted to cat and dog, you have a nanochip on your body. All the diseases are created with computer. All caries, all dental diseases, all skin diseases, all venereal diseases. Yes, that's with a B. All of them are created with computer. You have diseases on the body. You have a nanocomputer chip in your body. More than 200 years of computer diseases. Say no to terrorists, 21. All pain, all infections, all inflammations and all irritation are created with a computer. All cancer and all types of tumour are created with a computer. I learned all this from a truck which had these words painted on its side, photograph kicking around. This podcast is also created on computer. Make of that what you will. Uh, Here's some more science. Uh, Do you believe that this mRNA vaccine is going to genetically modify Yes, it will. The mRNA will actually take a piece of your DNA out. It will replace it with a synthetic one and and a synthetic piece. And they can do it anywhere they want in your whole DNA mechanism. So, you know, who knows what they're going to modify about you. But that also makes you patentable. That's right. They can own you. And uh, let me tell you, they've already started the vaccinations. They've already started them. They started them a long time ago. Uh, a long time ago, ago, obviously, that is. Sorry, though, I didn't edit that clip. That's Dr. Lorraine Day speaking on Israeli News Live, whoever they are. Lorraine Jeanette Day, born 24th of July 1937, is a U.S. author, former orthopedic trauma surgeon and chief of orthopedic surgery at San Francisco General Hospital, Shaw, and promoter of alternative cancer treatments. Yes, according to the uh, the Pedia, she claims to have discovered the cause and cure of cancer uh, as a result of God showing her how to recover from her own cancer with a 10-step 
plan. Uh, obviously, like all this is bullshit, but she says, all cancers are due to weaknesses of the immune system, which must be cured by diet. To quote her, all diseases are caused by a combination of three factors, malnutrition, dehydration, and stress. Interestingly, she doesn't mention computer and doesn't even come close to 5G or chemtrails. So I don't even know what sort of weird doctor she is. Uh, uh, Dr. Day has also referred to the Holocaust as a lie, so there's a bit of that, and she has indicated that she believes that Jewish people wish to, quote, destroy all governments and religions, which is interesting. Uh, I mean, none of, the, none of the Jewish people I know have ever shown any signs of wanting to do that, but maybe that's what they want me to think. Just, just to repeat, all this is obviously just complete bullshit but given that she is a holocaust denier i'm kind of wondering what she's doing on a place called israeli news live uh that's a question i'll leave you to answer maybe it's some weird outlet i, I don't know life's too short for these people uh, but as nbc news reports Anti-vaccination groups have been uh, targeting local media, at least in the United States, after the social media crackdowns. It's bizarre. This is bizarre. I mean, now that the social media uh, companies are trying to get this bullshit off their platforms, uh, according to NBC News, from California to Maine, uh, local news stations have been giving anti-vaccination activists a platform to spread misinformation, just like... Israeli News Live, and uh, we can expect a lot of this in Australia uh, as the vaccine for COVID-19 becomes available in the new year. Uh, speaking of misinformation, uh, Adam Creighton, the Pete Evans of economics. Uh, uh, we've mentioned him on the pod before. He really is a cunt. Um, some of his genius in recent days... Uh, uh, because, of course, China has refused more kinds of Australian imports, including uh, freedom wine, as we've heard before, and lobsters. Uh, Adam Creighton's brilliant suggestion is, quote, perhaps we should stop Chinese students studying here to send a message. Added benefit of giving our unis chance to revive their standards and serve Australians again. Um, good one, Adam. Um Let's remember that Australia's top five exports ranked by value are iron ore, which China has blocked, coal, which China has blocked, uh, natural gas, which I thought was further down the list, but that's come up to number three, uh, education-related services is at number four, i.e. international students, and at number five, personal travel services, i.e. tourism. So... Adam Creighton's brilliant idea is because China is disrupting our top two export industries, we should choose of our own free will to disrupt number four. I mean, why not? Oh, I could say so many stupid things about him. I'm in quite a mellow today, uh, quite a mellow mood today, aren't I? I'm just sort of cruising along, chatting away. It's a rainy Sunday afternoon, maybe... Maybe that's it. Maybe I need to have another drink. Uh, the other thing Adam Creighton said is that the more degrees unis pump out, the less valuable they are. 10% of Australians in poverty have a bachelor's degree. So I've, 
is his reasoning that we shouldn't have so many bachelor's degrees because some of the people with them are in poverty, uh, that we, we shouldn't have as many educated people because they all can't, can't get jobs? At, I don't know. A reminder, uh, Adam Creighton is economics editor of The Australian, the Pete Evans of newspapers. Um, and also just the other day, Adam Creighton said, this is a quote, uh, headline, personal liberty sacrificed at the altar of COVID public safety. I don't think it's personal, lib- personal liberties are sacrificed for public safety. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, he wants actu- actual people sacrificed so he can have his personal liberty. I mean, how, how dare other people influence his freedom to do whatever the fuck he likes, the selfish cunt. Uh, back in 2018, though, Goldman Sachs asked in a biotech research report, this is two years ago, is curing patients a sustainable business model? Yeah, I mean, Goldman, Goldman Sachs analysts said, look, here's the thing, we've got gene therapy and other things happening that could cure all manner of disease, but, said this report called the Genome Revolution, is curing patients a sustainable business model? I mean, yeah, what they're saying is, well, if we, we cure them with a the one-shot thing, where's, where's our recurring revenue? Uh, and uh, analyst Salvin Richter uh, wrote in a note to uh, Goldman Sachs' clients, this is two years ago, while this proposition carries tremendous value for patients and society, it could represent a challenge for genome medicine developers looking for sustained cash flow. Oh, the poor things. The poor things. Goldman Sachs, ladies and gentlemen, the vampire squid. I'll be having more about uh, year 2020 in the next episode. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, but this week, the Washington Post asked readers to come up with a word or phrase to describe 2020. Uh, a nine-year-old in Michigan came up with this one, which I quite like. 2020 is like looking both ways before crossing the street and then getting hit by a submarine. <laughs> Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. As I mentioned, we just returned from the Oval Office, and so it is my honor, on behalf of the President of the United States, to announce that henceforth, the men and women of the United States Space Force will be known as Guardians. Dear listener, that is not a scene uh, from the Netflix satire Space Force. That is about the actual, the real United States Space Force, and that it was that was the actual, real Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, telling us that uh, the United States is now defended not just by sol- soldiers, sailors, airmen. Uh, there should be air women as well in the Air Force, but never mind. Uh, in the National Guard, guardsmen, I suppose guards women, that there are now guardians, space guardians, guardians of the galaxy, guardians of orphan children, guardians of gnomes in your front garden, although gnomes are kind of the guardians anyway, aren't they, at least psychologically? And if you want to look this up, uh, 
Now, this is true as well, that the Guardians, uh, like all uh, organizations these days, has a three-word tagline, and theirs is heritage, mission, culture. Heritage, mission, culture, Guardians. Guardians. Space Guardians. Ah, fucking hell. It's five days to Christmas, of course. Uh, not that Christmas has really been much of a thing for me for, well, a couple of decades now. So I keep forgetting that in the last week or two before the holidays kick in, it's really quite hard to get four people together for a whole hour because they start doing Christmas things, right? So even without trying to get them into a pub, these hypothetical four people, which would obviously be a bad idea right now in itself, let alone just the normal logistics, I've decided for a bit of a change to the end-of-year rap episode. It won't be a panel now. I've decided to record individuals, uh, individual interviews for a multi-guest end-of-year episode that'll appear just after Christmas, uh, probably on the 29th of December, but, you know, in there. Um, I've already recorded a big long interview with the wonderful Mark Humphreys, who you'll know from 7.30 and Celebrity Mastermind and Pointless and... Uh, SBS is the feed and the chaser and the roast. Uh, so he's done already, and that's that's really quite funny. Uh, another guest will be Tegan Taylor, co-host of the ABC's Corona Cast, but not Dr. Norman Swan because he has totally unacceptable views on quokkas. They are bullshit animals, uh, and some more guests just to be confirmed. So uh, that's I'm really looking forward to that. Meanwhile, this episode is really. Uh, just to get a few things out of my system, as as you may have already noticed. Uh, and this episode, it's also thank you, uh, yes, to all of the generous end of Spring Series 2020 supporters, uh, even though this is kind of an extra episode, but why not? Thank you for everyone. And also thank you to the ever generous Tim Holland. Thank you. And um, yes, just checking. Yes, that's everyone in the last week. So as always, thank you to all of you. Uh, and if you are not one of those people, uh, if you would like to join them and supporting this podcast and uh, the things I do on Twitter and other things, um, and I know it's Christmas, and I know it's the COVIDs, and I know you've got a lot on your plate right now, but if you'd like to join them in their generosity, if you'd like to give me a little Christmas present, eh? Yeah, why not do that? Uh, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip, the 9pmedict.com slash tip. Uh, there's a link through there to subscribe if you want to subscribe for the extra benefits like uh, trigger words and conversation topics. But there you go. Share the love, people. Share the love. <laughs> much more mentally healthy candidates for president than him have gone through extended periods of depression following their losses. It's a huge public loss and humiliation. But Trump is not available to depression. He just won't go there, I don't think. So instead, he'll go to anger. And he will drum up 
that anger that's sitting inside his supporters in any way he can to provide evidence that he was wronged, the election was rigged, and he didn't really lose. Trust me when I say this. When Trump loses the election, he will never acknowledge, he will not concede the election, and he will never acknowledge that he lost the election. Because to do that is to feel obliterated. And he's not going there. So it's going to be a dangerous, tense time in America uh, in, the, in the weeks after the election. So that's a guy called Tony Schwartz. Now, the reason he's important is he was actually the ghostwriter of Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal. So he kind of knows Trump really well. And he's predicting there, predicting there, predicting there exactly what Trump would do when he lost the election. Thing is, though, that's a clip from 2016 talking about the previous election, which, of course, we all expected Trump to lose, except me, as you know. I knew. I knew that this was where we would be going. And that's exactly what's happening. If you'd like to hear more of that, by the way, uh, that was from an hour-long chat uh, at Oxford University. And there's links on the podcast webpage, blah 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 That's Tony Schwartz. Now, do you remember Michael Flynn, right, the former U.S. general uh, who was uh, Trump's national security advisor for about 20 minutes, uh, who subsequently pleaded guilty to war crimes, uh, not war crimes, crimes, like lying to the FBI, uh, and who, of course, has since been pardoned by Donald Trump? Well, here's uh, Michael Flynn uh, the other day on Newsmax. He could order the... the, um within the swing states, if he wanted to, he could take military capabilities and he could place them in those states and basically rerun an election in each of those states. I mean, it's not unprecedented. I mean, these people out there talking about martial law, it's like it's something that we've never done. We've done, martial law has been instituted 64, 64 times, Greg. So I'm not calling for that. We have a constitutional process. We clearly have a constitutional process. I think you highlighted some of that in, the, in, the, in your previous segment. That has to be followed. It does, sure. Yes, the constitutional process has to be followed. Uh, and then the result will be ignored, presumably, because Trump. Uh, Newsmax, by the way, is a well, kind, of, kind of newish news outlet that sprung up because uh, Fox News is now too left-wing, apparently. Anyway, let's hear, while we're in the United States, while we're in a cheerful mood, let's hear from Pastor Stephen Andrew. If you know anybody who says they're a Democrat, they need to be ashamed of themselves to stand for Satan, to stand for shedding innocent blood. Those people have seared consciences. You know, the Democrats, they stand for socialism, communism. That causes poverty and tyranny. I mean, they are so wicked. Everybody needs to just say, I condemn Democrats. God condemns Democrats. That's the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy 25.1. This is not my opinion. This is God's opinion. If you have a problem with God, you're the one with the problem. If you agree with God, then you're blessed. If you agree with God, then God's on your side. God will help you. 
So stand up, stand up and rebuke every Democrat. Chase them out of the nation. If they don't repent, we don't want them here. God doesn't want them in heaven and we don't want them here. Words of wisdom there from Pastor Stephen Andrew. Right then, we don't want the Democrats here. It's the word of the Lord, Deuteronomy 25.1. Okay, um, now, you may not know this, but the Bible is on the internet now. Quite a bit of it, actually, like the whole Bible. All of it is on the internet. Uh, and so I've looked it up, obviously, Deuteronomy Chapter 25, uh, from the uh, Revised New Standard Version, uh, as Father Carl suggested the other week. That's that's the one at least the Catholic Church uh, recommends, well, to English language readers, I suppose. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. Deuteronomy 25, 1. Suppose two persons have a dispute and enter into litigation, and the judges decide between them, declaring one to be in the right and the other to be in the wrong. If the one in the wrong deserves to be flogged, the judge shall make that person lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of lashes proportionate to the offence. Forty lashes may be given, but not more. If more lashes than these are given, your neighbour will be degraded in your sight. I won't read it that again, but I, I think it's fairly clear that there there was no mention of the Democrats in there, was there? About socialism, about communism. Forty lashes, no more. Uh, there's some good stuff in Deuteronomy 25. Um, verse 4, following immediately on from that, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, for some reason. Verse 5 onwards, Deuteronomy 25, folks. When brothers reside together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, taking her in marriage and performing the duty of a husband's brother to her, and the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man has no desire to marry his brother's widow, then his brother's widow shall go up to the elders at the gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. <sighs> wow, that's, that, that's a big complaint where the brother won't f f fuck his dead brother's wife. Verse 8 onwards, then the elders of this town shall summon him and speak to him. If he persists, saying, I have no desire to marry her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and declare, this is what is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Throughout Israel, his family shall be known as the house of him whose sandal was pulled off. Oh, wow. The house of him whose sandal was pulled off. God bless America, and let's not even mention the death toll.
let's not make jokes about that. I, I, I really does reduce me to tears sometime. Now, in in recent months, I've been catching up on some older comedy. Uh, a lot of it from uh, just a few years ago. Uh, and a whole bunch from the 1990s, about 25 years ago. Some of it stands up, some of it doesn't. But either way, it's certainly better than staying up to date with the current news, right? I mean, uh, this tactic is perhaps not the best for someone uh, like me who works as a journalist, um, allegedly. Uh, But that has been my pattern this year. And look, odds on, you've probably been doing ill-advised things to counteract the COVID doom too. And, And like, good on you. Cope how you will. Anyway, the old comedy, what's remarkable about listening to political satire, political comedy from, you know, more than 20 years ago, is how little changes. I mean, I mean, sure, the names are different, maybe some geographical details are different, but the core issues always seem to be much the same, especially when it comes down to comparing the policies of the two major sides of politics, which is something that is a thing well, throughout certainly English-speaking countries, and so on. Anyway, uh, this week, a little more recently, I watched a stage show by Jonathan Pye, you know, the character who's the shouty, lefty TV newsreader who shouts at his producer, Tim, uh, creation uh, of an English comedian by the name of Tom Walker. Anyway, the stage show I watched was one of his early ones, I think, from 2017, recorded uh, at the Shepherd's Bush Empire Theatre, which sounds very exciting. Uh, And this clip, it's about five minutes long, this clip really spoke to me. Um, Jonathan Pye starts off talking about Brexit and specifically the appalling state of the political debate at the time. You know, Theresa May saying Brexit means Brexit and other such helpful uh, political slogans. Uh, But then Mr Pye goes on to talking about the left. The reason no one knows what Brexit means is the level of debate running up. No one knew what they were putting their cross next to that day. No one. The level of debate on both sides running up to that referendum was appalling. Both sides need to take responsibility for this. There weren't any facts. There weren't any facts. It was all about who could say the most alarmist thing and get away with it. Oh, Brexit will bring about World War Three. Ah, yes, but Hitler would have voted Remain. Do you know what I mean? I, I didn't bring that up. Cameron and Johnson came up with those two beauties. Fuck me, you even had Bob Geldof chasing fishermen down the Thames. Yeah, that, that isn't reasonable political debate. That is a dream you have when you've taken too much crack. Yeah, you had, you had the Leave campaign exploiting our fears over immigration. You had the Remain campaign exploiting the murder of an MP to score political points. Politicians on both sides of the divide all behaving like Old Testament prophets, all jostling for position. Put that phone away or I'll fucking kill you. Uh, I swear to God. You had politicians on both sides. Cameron, Johnson, uh, Duncan Smith, Pew Pew, Barney McGrew all fucking tearing the Tory party apart. And, And as for Labour... Fuck me! (laughs) They very, very simply fisted themselves to death. (laughs) I'm not wrong. (laughs) Labour. Labour. The left. The left. 
my left. You might, you might have guessed I am a bit of a lefty. Um, <laughs> what can I say? Shut up. Can, what can I say about... Uh, what can I say about the left? Um, the left are irrelevant. That's the truth. Ooh. It's true. The left are irrelevant. The left have made themselves irrelevant. The left have ignored the working classes for so long, and yet we're still amazed when the working classes don't vote the way we want them to. The left have abandoned their traditional principles of looking out for the common man in favour of identity politics. Identity politics is only concerned with issues of your race, your gender, your sexuality, your disability, your body type. All extraordinarily important things, and it means society is immeasurably more inclusive. But the truth of the matter is this. Money is all that matters when it comes to inclusivity, social mobility, us all having the same opportunities as everyone else. Money. If you're working a 60-hour week on a zero-hour contract and you still can't afford to feed your kids or pay your rent, I guarantee you don't give a fuck about the issues of a sub-Saharan transgender lesbian paraplegic with an eating disorder. All you give a fuck about, all you give a fuck about is why you are pissed Fuck poor while the rich continue to get richer. You want answers and no one's giving you those answers, especially the left. So there is this vacuum where those answers should be and that void is being filled with right-wing, UKIP, take-back-control rhetoric and that is why the left continue to lose. But of course, my brain can't process that information. I can see some faces here. It won't go in, will it? That can't be true. That can't be true. I know, I, my brain can't process it. I'll tell you why. Because I'm a Guardian reader, which means I am middle class and I can afford to spend £2 a day to read opinions that I already agree with. That's the fucking problem. <laughs> the fucking Guardian. The fucking Guardian. I bet there's one or two people in here that read The Guardian, right? For those of you that don't, if you read The Guardian online, for those of you that don't read The Guardian online, I'll tell you what happens when you read The Guardian online. You're reading The Guardian online and this thing pops up. And go, can, can you, sorry, hello. Can, can you please... Can you please donate five pounds? Just five pounds, please. Help a poor little journalist out, please. For the, for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help out our journalists. They actually beg you for money. Like they're fucking Dr. Bernardo's or something, right? I've got fucking news for you, right? The Guardian is not a charity. It is not a political or social movement. The Guardian is a smug, hack, neoliberal, self-satisfied, high-handed rag. Champagne socialism minus the socialism. Here, here is an article about the horrors of cultural appropriation next to a recipe for quinoa. Small C conservatism for big C cunts. That's the fucking Guardian. You only get to read the opinions you already agree with. And that, in a nutshell, is everything that is wrong with the left. Ah, uh, Christmas, Christmas. Uh, one, one good thing happened this week, I should mention. After joking for days about how I needed to be at a certain bar on Friday to win a Samsung 50-inch TU8000 Crystal UHD 4K Smart TV, I went to a certain bar on Friday and indeed won a Samsung 50-inch TU8000 Crystal UHD 4K Smart TV, which was lovely. And then... I was kind of given free drinks and food all evening. So um, 
Thank you. I'll say which pub. Thank you to Sean Sim, the licensee, uh, and all the staff at the Great Southern Hotel on uh, George Street in Sydney. It is no longer a place where you are likely to get stabbed. No, really. Uh, it it has a history, but it's it's really quite nice now. Um, and uh, yeah, that was <laughs> that was a bit weird. That was a bit weird, I should say, because. I don't actually watch much TV or all or that many movies, so I'm still deciding what I want to do. Like, I want to keep that feeling of having an unexpected Christmas treat, right? Because that's such a lovely thing. And, you know, Christmas presents and all that hasn't been a big thing for me for a very, very long time. So it's a kind of special treat. Uh, but at the same time, well, a, a friend has said, hey, uh, you know, Maybe I can buy it from you, and I thought, oh, that's that's good. And then I could get myself at like a different unexpected little special Christmas treat that would have uh, even more joyful input for for my good self. So I don't know. I'll tell you next time. Um, but that was quite lovely. Um, but yeah, Christmas hasn't been much of a thing for a long time. No, but no particular reason. Well, I suppose there are reasons. Um, what family I do have are a long way away. We never really did Christmas as a huge thing anyway, except back when I was a, a kid, you know, just before the Boer War. Um, and and there was a kind of extended family Christmas each year. So my memories of that, I'll, I'll share these with you because I know that some of you people listening to this will uh, recognise some of this, at, at least... Uh, at least the older ones amongst you. This was in mostly country South Australia, so it was always ferociously hot, um, at least by the standards of the time. Um, the drink of choice uh, for my uncle and his family, which was where we often had Christmas dinner, was Southwark Bitter, a shit beer. I don't even know whether it's made anymore. You're not really missing anything. Uh, it certainly was something that... Uh, put me off the concept of beer until, well, much, much later. There was always some wine uh, brought by the extended family, as I've said in the past. Uh, my mother's side of the family are all Barossa Deutsch kind of wine people. Uh, there was always roast chicken because back in the day, roast chicken was a really expensive treat. These days, like like chicken's like quite a cheap meat, but back back in the day it was expensive treat. Uh, and to get a roast chicken on Christmas Day, you had to book ahead with the the chicken shop. Now, seriously, you they they were only allowed to open for a little bit on Sunday mornings, like at all on any Sunday morning. But Christmas Day, they would op- they would open for like about an hour, and you had to have booked ahead uh, to get a chicken. Uh, or or however many you wanted, and you had to turn up at that time at nine o'clock on Christmas Day morning to get it. And if you know you you were late, you were late. Bad luck. Um, <laughs> I mean, back then, uh, I mean, these days with you know supermarkets open to midnight in the city and even ten p.m. during the Rona times up in the mountains, um, the idea that that everything shut at five p.m. weekdays. Uh, except Thursday night when they introduced late trading on a Thursday night and things opened to 9pm. And in South Australia, it was late trading in, in the suburbs on Thursday and, and the CBD on Fridays open. Wow, to 9pm. Uh, back in the day, like everything shut at midday on Saturday. So supermarkets, 9am till midday. None of this 
8 a.m. or 7 a.m. started through to the night. Sundays, nothing was open, and certainly pubs weren't open on a Sunday, except I like South Australia's scam. Pubs could be open on a Sunday for lunch, provided they had lunch, and provided they were in a designated tourist area or, you know, serving bona fide travellers. Bona fide, as uh, uh, Dr. Norman Swadden said the other day on the radio, but then he likes quokkas, so, you know, I wouldn't trust that prick. Uh, so South Australia got around this by, all right, all right, you can you can open, you know, on Sundays if you're a pub in a designated tourist area, uh, and then they just, under ministerial thing, just gradually extended the definition of designated tourist area until it encompassed the whole state. So that was lovely. Uh, prawn cocktails. They were a huge thing, which are um, some heart. So you get a like a, a little bowl or a cup, like a, one of those open champagne glasses as opposed to a proper champagne flute, which you would use these days. Back then it was that shallow kind of, you know, Marie Antoinette's tit glass. Uh, so you'd, you'd put some half-ass salad in there, you know, a bit of lettuce couple of sticks of carrot you know and and then you'd shove a prawn into it or two prawns if you were extravagant and then a big blob of mayonnaise or some sort of seafood sauce thing prawn cocktail people there was a christmas ham of course um which then last Saturday, uninspiring salads. I mean, you know, a bit of lettuce and tomato and cucumber in one some sludgy coleslaw in another uh, what are the kinds of salads were there? Beans? I mean, the old can of four bean mix, that was pretty fucking exotic. Um, potato salad, of course. Potato salad with, you know, boiled eggs in it. Maybe a little bit of chopped ham, if you're really lucky. Maybe even some salt and pepper in it, if you're really wanting to lash out on the flavours. Uh, a dessert, of course, Christmas pudding, uh, which in the heat of the Australian summer had to be served with hot custard, obviously. That was Christmas. Do you want to hear about your... Well, I can't do this because the next podcast won't be till after Christmas, but, you know, maybe we can do a Christmas thing next year. Um, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia, um, he, of course, is a man who uh, doesn't like to involve his family in politics. Uh, so he wrote a, a private Christmas message to his daughters, uh, which he then published on Facebook, obviously. So let me read that to you. To my daughters, Abby and Lily, you are both such a blessing to your mum and me. Everything we do is about your future. And because of my job, it's also about the future of thousands of families across Australia. As you know, this often means that I'm away a lot. <laughs> yeah, like. Christmas fucking holidays in Hawaii, uh, but it also means I get to meet other mums and dads who are trying their hardest to do what's best for their children. To help them and all of the people who live in Australia, I've been talking to them about how what dad does can help them have a job, help them buy their home, support them as they try and save up for when they retire, like mama and pepper and nana and pa did, so they can have the best possible life, just like we want for you. When we do this, 
and everyone does better, that means we can pay for the hospitals and schools and the roads to look after our environment and do what we need to do to deal with climate change. While I've been a what I, lo- I love how he's giving a fucking party political to his kids at Christmas. Imagine having to put up with this cunt. While I've been away, I met a boy not much older than you who has cystic fibrosis. It makes it very hard for him to breathe. Because of the work Dad has been doing to manage the government's money well, we have been able to make sure Luke gets the drugs he needs to help him breathe better and play with all the other kids. This is patronising garbage. Hang on, I haven't planned to do this. Let's just have a look at how old Scott Morrison's children are. Now, I know quite a few of you listening to this are parents uh, and take a lot of care of your kids uh, and so on. So, that's look, that's lovely. Um, okay, Wikipedia just says he has two kids. Uh, one, two, three, four. Look, I'm going to have to... Uh, wow. Age of Scott Morrison's daughters. Uh, what age is it? Um, oh my God, I found a, a website called nowtolove.com.au, which, I, which is about, oh, it's reprinted that Women's Weekly story uh, about Morrison. Oh God! 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 Okay, this is from earlier this year, where Abby was eleven and Lily was nine. So, I want you to think about how your kids, aged eleven and nine, would respond to this drivel. So that Luke can breathe better and play with all the other kids. It also means we can make sure we help people with disability, like Uncle Gary, who you know is amazing. (laughs) I've got relatives who are disabled, says Scott Morrison. Some of his best friends are probably black too. That's my bit, not him. These last few weeks, says Scott Morrison, I've met thousands of people who just want to have a go and do the best they can like mum and I try to teach you girls to do. That's why I have this job that takes me away from you sometimes. But I know when you grow up, you will understand. Life is about what you contribute. That's what mama and Pepper taught me and Uncle Alan. Right, life is about what you can contribute. Miss you with all my love, Dad. One get, does get the impression that Scott Morrison is away somewhere. And indeed, at the time of recording these words, we, the citizens of Australia, don't actually know where Scott Morrison is either. Somewhere being a spineless cunt, I imagine. Or actually, actually, I think he's probably in Afghanistan filming some sort of macho Christmas appearance with the troops. Or something. Scott Morrison, ladies and gentlemen, the Prime Minister of Australia. Um, who else sent a Christmas message? Ah, oh, yes, Bob Catter. Uh, if you're not an Australian, you won't know who Bob Catter is. Uh, let's just say he's a Queensland Member of Parliament um, who is 
Robert B. Catter, or Robert Bellamine Carl Catter, mad as a hatter, I think I'm going to put that. He's he's a strange fella. Anyway, he, he was a member of the National Party, which is your kind of rural right kind of agrarian socialist. He then went to become an independent and then he formed his own party, the Catters Australian Party. That was back in 2011. Now, um, Bob Catter has sent a Christmas message to uh, his supporters. So let's, let's read that for you. What 2020 can learn from the Christmas truce of 1914. Let me bring this nice and close so I can read it. In the trench lines on the Somme in 1914, whistles blow over the top, a wall of machine gun bullets, whopping mortar bombs, hailstorms of shrapnel, and it went on and on and on. Uh, this is World War One, obviously. And then it was Christmas Eve, a German soldier's voice singing gently over no man's land. Still not elegant. I can't sing in tune. Anyway, I'm not a Anyway, uh, after a short time later from the British lines in English, uh, Silent Night, Holy Night, Little Calm, blah, 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 virgins, children, infants. Pope Benedict in September 1914, called for a Christmas truce. The troops on both sides understood the message of Christ of Christmas. The monarchs of Europe did not. The world, both then and now, may believe life ends in death, decay and nothingness. Christ's birth gives us the idea, if not the reality, of eternal life. So does he believe in eternal life? If I don't, Apparently not. To believe that there is a God without any physical evidence, without any empirical reality, is a hard call. To explain why, how come every atom is surrounded by energy shells with a definite electron number in each shell, I would argue, is an even bigger hard call. The evolutionists, the taking Christ child out of Christmas mob, they have replaced him with a race for market share. Or did you get a good present? They have made Christmas about as uplifting as a gambling addiction. I'm... I'm pausing why someone being an evolutionist is about taking Christ Childs out of Christmas because, of course, uh, science and religion are about two completely separate areas of human existence and sit quite nicely together, but whatever. Okay. I, 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 um, the next line perhaps explains where he's coming from here. This is the key one. Evolution gave, gave us Adolf Hitler, 23 million dead. Now that, I mean, that's true, I suppose. But then God also gave us Adolf Hitler with 23 million dead. So, I mean, that's, Father Carl isn't here. I and mean, that's obviously a very hard question of theology. Uh, why, if God is good, does God allow evil to happen in the world? Blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe we'll come back to that another time. Anyway, Christianity, and this oh, bullet point list of things Christianity did, according to uh, Bob Catter MP. Christianity civilised the Roman Imperium, shielded Europe from the Vikings, and freed Europe from the Islamic Ottoman subjugation. Uh, he's talking about uh, Tamerlane with 4% of the world's population dead. 
Christianity delivered the Renaissance, science and beauty, uh, who were the Medici bankers and popes of Rome, Galileo, Michelangelo. Given he just had a bit of a rant about capitalism, how come the Medici bankers aren't tarred with the same brush? I don't know. Uh, Christianity gave us international trade, apparently. Diaz, Christopher Columbus were financed by the Order of Christ, uh, Queen Isabella and the Pope. Um, Christianity gave us the Magna Carta, Archbishop Langton mentioned in brackets. Christianity abolished slavery, apparently. He's pointing to Newman Wilberforce, the British uh, anti-slavery campaigner. And Christianity abolished communism. And he's talking about uh, Lech Walesa, Pope John Paul, Mikhail Gorbachev, Senator Huey Long, who's also a preacher. They're all Christians, he says. Stalin, however, 26 million dead. And Mao Zedong, 48 million dead. Let us return to where we started, says Bob Catter. Most of the soldiers that fought at the Somme would die or be maimed for life as the collective hubris of European royalty plumbed to new depths of barbarity. Forget this and join with those soldiers who trusted their, quote, enemy, unquote, and climbed out of their trenches unarmed as they sang, Christ the Saviour is born Christ the Saviour is born. Thank you, Bob Catter, for that heartfelt, if not entirely coherent, Christmas thought. I think that's a perfect spot to end this podcast. Well, that's the edict for now. Uh, all the links, uh, if you want to tip, like, subscribe, send money, go to the 9pmedict.com. Yes, please do that. The next episode will be just after Christmas. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Season's greetings and wash your hands. Please do that. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry. The north wind is tossing the leaves. The red dust is over the town. The sparrows are under the eaves. And the grass in the paddock is brown. As we lift up our voices to sing to the Christ child, the heavenly king.